We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. And what is the mechanic? Liberty. The government Water. becomes so Water. overbearing, so there is overbearing. no such thing. Welcome to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. For more audio and videos, please subscribe to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. And follow me by my Twitter handle at anarchy underscore culture. If you'd like to make a small contribution to our show, please visit www.culture-anarchy.com slash donate.html. Also, if you can stop by iTunes, please leave a great rating for the show to help move our podcast up the ranks. I'd like to thank subscribers to the Liberty.me feed for supporting the podcast. We will soon be releasing our second edition of The Dial, our literary magazine. The January issue is available on our website, and our next edition will be out in August. We will be podcasting selections of poetry from The Dial at the end of each month. So if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast presents Liberty or Equality The Intergenerational Dialogue of Western Civilization Featuring the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Ernest Renan, William Graham Sumner, and Lord Acton Reinterpreted in the light of Frieser J. Hayek's Theory of Catalactics Emerson's The Transcendentalist, Kant, Transcendental Philosophy, and the American Legacy of German Idealism. And an essay entitled, What is the Enlightenment? 1784. The philosopher Immanuel Kant declared his credo for the coming intellectual reforms of the 19th century which he believed would mark a transition from stale religious and intellectual forms of rote custom and bureaucracy into a new kind of human consciousness. This new consciousness, secure in its method, assured of its theoretical grounding, was the culmination of the Aristotelian project in analytical philosophy, an organon, 
or science of thinking, which would equip every user and proficient practitioner with the ability to process reality minus the varying creeds, illusions, lies, errors, and propaganda that seek the oppression, beguilement, and delusion of the human mind in order to secure compliance with established authority. In other words, Kant envisioned a new century governed by self-government and personal responsibility, a world that could transcend the norms of culture with the freedom of self-appointed philosophers found in anarchy. He wrote, Enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage. Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his understanding without direction from another. Self-incurred is this tutelage when its cause lies not in lack of reason, but in lack of resolution and courage to use it without direction from another. Sapere aude. Have courage to use your own reason. That is the motto of enlightenment. Laziness and cowardice are the reasons why so great a portion of mankind, after nature has long since discharged them from external direction, nevertheless remains under lifelong tutelage, and why it is so easy for others to set themselves up as their guardians. It is so easy not to be of age. If I have a book which understands for me, a pastor who has a conscience for me, a physician who decides my diet, and so forth, I need not trouble myself. I need not think. If I can only pay, others will readily undertake the irksome work for me. The Enlightenment, which proceeded somewhat chaotically throughout the late 1700s in Europe and America with varying degrees of success and with varying degrees of commitment to the contending ideals of liberty and equality, unseated empires and created new hegemonies. It led to the Lockean reforms of the American continent and the dystopian, secularist, totalitarian Jacobins of the French Revolution, with the attendant collapses and reconstitution of the Ancien Regime throughout Europe. It is true that revolutions are messy and are generally opportunist and populist in nature. The intellectuals who whip up agitation and radical change are rarely the same individuals who direct philosophical reform. For every Kant, Jefferson, Burke, and Thomas Paine, there is a Sam Adams, an opportunist, propagandist, and pedagogue who can whip up popular sentiment in order to effect violent change, for good or ill. Kant's lasting philosophical achievement was the system of thought he put into action in the Critique of Pure Reason. By means of analytical philosophy and logical deduction, he set into place the certain grounds from which a philosophy might be justified by reason alone through several self-evident axioms. By this criticism, Kant tried to embody the systematic method of thought more so than a codified art of professional complaining. As Peter Gay wrote of the Enlightenment in his History of the Era, The Enlightenment, the age of philosophy, was also, and mainly, the Age of Criticism. These two names did not merely designate allied activities. They were synonyms, different expressions, as Ernest Carcier has said, of the same situation, intended to characterize from diverse angles the fundamental intellectual energy which permeates the era and to which it owes its great trends of thought. This energy was the drive for knowledge and control, a restless Faustian dissatisfaction with mere surfaces, or mere passivity. Its favorite instrument was analysis, its essential atmosphere freedom, 
Its goal, reality. For all their brave talk about their need to destroy the wild beast of superstition, talk that soon gave rise to the charge that the Enlightenment was merely negative, the philosophes did not sharply separate their work into tearing down and building up. For Kant, his personal mission was to justify the rationalist foundations of philosophical investigation sketched out by Aristotle. He was by turns intrigued by the work of the English skeptics, John Locke and David Hume, and horrified by some of their negligences and the implications of their purely empirical philosophy. He very much saw himself as building up towards something secure and true, after a great tearing down had been attempted by the empiricists. For the empiricist, much like the modern materialists and atheists, the world consisted only of facts justified by observation and experience. Everything had to be tested. Logic itself, perhaps, was nothing but organized habit and custom, the outgrowth of culture and prejudice. And if logic could be doubted, if there were no such thing as a right or a self-evident truth, then criticism was nothing but a constant griping with reality. There were no time-invariant truths, no apodictic certainties, no laws that we could hold as a priori true, regardless of the conditions of the environment in which an event takes place. But with this empirical dogma in place, a greater untruth now presented itself. If one could not perceive untrammeled truth, since one could not trust the veracity of one's senses, then how could one justify the empiricist dogma, which held that there was no time-invariant truth, since this dogma would require of the universe a single time-invariant truth, namely, there is no time-invariant truth? One could not hold this truth as binding upon the human subject, the thinker, as well as the object of the contemplation. Things are either true or they are not. They cannot be both. And in order to get sure grounds for his theory, Kant tackled the concepts of space and time first. These, he argued, could not belong to empirical reality. They had to be properties of the mind, things in the mind, and not out there in the things in themselves that have traditionally been examined as the objects of objective reality. Two trees standing on a bank do not contain in themselves the properties of space for space will be defined by the observer, by his frame of reference in space and time, and will not be found in the objects themselves. There is no concept of space without an observer. Hence, one could deduce a truth that escapes space and time, and if one could deduce one truth, others would surely follow. Kant did not set out to refute empiricism, but to show that, within empirical reality, one can find synthetic a priori truths underneath the grounds of sensible information. For if one only accounts for what is observed and what is experienced, both passive propositions, one has to query, prior to the reception of information, what it is that observes and experiences as an active agency. Amongst all our sensible experiences and observations, there is an intuitive apparatus of mind that, in the absence of which, there could be no experience and observation. From Section 2 of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason The Transcendental Aesthetic General Observations on the Transcendental Aesthetic 
To avoid all misapprehension, it is necessary to explain as clearly as possible what our view is regarding the fundamental constitution of sensible knowledge in general. What we have meant to say is that all our intuition is nothing but the representation of appearance, that the things which we intuit are not in themselves what we intuit them as being, nor their relations so constituted in themselves as they appear to us, and that if the subject, or even only the subjective constitution of the senses in general, be removed, the whole constitution and all the relations of objects in space and time, nay, in space and time themselves, would vanish. As appearances, they cannot exist in themselves, would vanish. As appearances, they cannot exist in themselves, but only in us. What objects may be in themselves, and apart from all this receptivity of our sensibility, remains completely unknown to us. We know nothing but our mode of perceiving them, a mode which is peculiar to us, and not necessarily shared in by every being, though certainly by every human being. With this alone we have any concern. Space and time are its pure forms, and sensation in general its matter. The former alone we can know a priori, that is, prior to all actual perception. And such knowledge is therefore called pure intuition. The latter is that in our knowledge which leads to its being called a posteriori knowledge, that is, empirical intuition. The former inhere in our sensibility with absolute necessity, no matter of what kind our sensations may be. The latter can exist in varying modes. Even if we could bring our intuition to the highest degree of clearness, we should not thereby come any nearer to the constitution of objects in themselves. We should still know only our mode of intuition, that is, our sensibility. We should, indeed, know it completely, but always only under the conditions of space and time, conditions which are originally inherent in the subject. What the objects may be in themselves would never become known to us even through the most enlightened knowledge of that which is alone given us, namely, their appearance. The concept of sensibility and of appearance would be falsified, and our whole teaching in regard to them would be rendered empty and useless if we were to accept the view that our entire sensibility is nothing but a confused representation of things, containing only what belongs to them in themselves but doing so under an aggregation of characters and partial representations that we do not consciously distinguish. For the difference between a confused and a clear representation is merely logical and does not concern the content. No doubt the concept of right, in its common sense usage, contains all that the subtlest speculation can develop out of it, though in its ordinary and practical use we are not conscious of the manifold representations comprised in this thought. But we cannot say that the common concept is therefore sensible, containing a mere appearance, for right can never be an appearance. It is a concept in the understanding, and represents a property, a moral property, of actions, which belongs to them in themselves. The representation of a body in intuition, on the other hand, contains nothing that can belong to the object in itself, but merely to the appearance of something, and the mode in which we are affected by that something. And this receptivity of our faculty of knowledge is termed sensibility, even if that appearance could become completely transparent to us. Such knowledge would remain totoquelo, different from knowledge of the object in itself. The philosophy of Leibniz and Wolff, in thus treating the difference between the sensible and the intelligible as merely logical, 
has given a completely wrong direction to all investigations into the nature and origin of our knowledge. This difference is quite evidently transcendental. It does not merely concern their logical form as being either clear or confused. It concerns their origin and content. It is not that by our sensibility we cannot know the nature of things in themselves in any save a confused fashion. We do not apprehend them in any fashion whatsoever. If our subjective constitution be removed, the represented object, with the qualities which sensible intuition bestows upon it, is nowhere to be found, and cannot possibly be found. For it is this subjective constitution which determines its form as appearance. We commonly distinguish in appearances that which is essentially inherent in their intuition and holds for sense in all human beings from that which belongs to their intuition, accidentally only, and is valid not in relation to sensibility in general, but only in relation to a particular standpoint or to a particularity of structure in this or that sense. The former kind of knowledge is then declared to represent the object in itself, the latter its appearance only. But this distinction is merely empirical. If, as generally happens, we stop short at this point and do not proceed as we ought to treat the empirical intuition as itself mere appearance in which nothing that belongs to a thing in itself can be found, our transcendental distinction is lost. We then believe that we know things in themselves, and this in spite of the fact that in the world of sense, however deeply we inquire into its objects, we have to do with nothing but appearances. The rainbow in a sunny shower may be called a mere appearance, and the rain the thing in itself. This is correct, if the latter concept be taken in a merely physical sense. Rain will then be viewed only as that which, in all experience, and in all its various positions relative to the senses, is determined thus, and not otherwise, in our intuition. If we take this empirical object in its general character and ask, without considering whether or not it is the same for all human sense, whether it represents an object in itself, and by that we cannot mean the drops of rain, for these are already, as appearances, empirical objects. The question as to the relation of the representation to the object at once becomes transcendental. We then realize that not only are the drops of rain mere appearances, but that even their round shape, nay, even the space in which they fall, are nothing in themselves but merely modifications or fundamental forms of our sensible intuition, and that the transcendental object remains unknown to us. The second important concern of our transcendental aesthetic is that it should not obtain favor merely as a plausible hypothesis, but should have that certainty and freedom from doubt which is required of any theory that is to serve as an organon. To make this certainty completely convincing, we shall select a case by which the validity of the position adopted will be rendered obvious, and which shall serve to set what has been said before in a clearer light. Let us suppose that space and time are in themselves objective, and are conditions of the possibility of things in themselves. In the first place, it is evident that in regard to both, there is a large number of a priori epidictic and synthetic propositions. This is especially true of space, to which our chief attention will therefore be directed in this inquiry. Since the propositions of geometry are synthetic a priori, and are known with epidictic certainty, I raise the question, Whence do you obtain such propositions, and upon what does the understanding rely in its endeavor to achieve such absolutely necessary and universally valid truths? 
There is no other way than through concepts or through intuitions, and these are given either a priori or a posteriori. In their latter form, namely as empirical concepts, and also as that upon which these are grounded, the empirical intuition, neither the concepts nor the intuitions, can yield any synthetic proposition except such as is itself, also merely empirical, that is, a proposition of experience, and which for that very reason can never possess the necessity and absolute universality which are characteristic of all geometrical propositions. As regards the first and sole means of arriving at such knowledge, namely, in a priori fashion, through mere concepts or through intuitions, it is evident that from mere concepts only analytic knowledge, not synthetic knowledge, is to be obtained. Take, for instance, the proposition, two straight lines cannot enclose a space, and with them alone no figure is possible. And try to derive it from the concept of straight lines and of the number two, or take the proposition, Given three straight lines, a figure is possible, and try, in like manner, to derive it from the concepts involved. All your labor is in vain. And you find that you are constrained to have recourse to intuition, as is always done in geometry. You therefore give yourself an object in intuition. But of what kind is this intuition? Is it a pure a priori intuition, or an empirical intuition? Were it the latter... No universally valid proposition could ever arise out of it, still less an apodictic proposition, for experience can never yield such. You must therefore give yourself an object a priori in intuition, and ground upon this your synthetic proposition. If there did not exist in your power of a priori intuition, and if that subjective condition were not also at the same time, as regard its form, the universal a priori condition under which alone the object of this outer intuition is itself possible, if the object, the triangle, were something in itself, apart from any relation to you, the subject, how could you say that what necessarily exists in you as subjective conditions for the construction of a triangle must of necessity belong to the triangle itself? You could not then add anything new, the figure, to your concepts of three lines, as something which must necessarily be met with in the object, since the object is, on that view, given antecedently to your knowledge, and not by means of it. If, therefore, space, and the same is true of time, were not merely a form of your intuition containing conditions a priori under which alone things can be outer objects to you, and without which subjective conditions outer objects are in themselves nothing, you could not, in regard to outer objects, determine anything whatsoever in an a priori and synthetic manner. It is, therefore, not merely possible or probable, but indubitably certain that space and time, as the necessary conditions of all outer and inner experience, are merely subjective conditions of all our intuition, and that in relation to these conditions, all objects are, therefore, mere appearances, and not given us as in things in themselves which exist in this manner. For this reason also, while much can be said a priori as regards the form of appearances, nothing whatsoever can be asserted of the thing in itself, which may underlie these appearances.
The influence of German idealism on the American public, and particularly the transcendentalists of Boston, was unique in its revelation there, as if in demonstration of a time-invariant theoretical truth's subjective application in different environmental constraints. The first characteristic of American transcendentalism is that it was fiercely individualistic and self-defining. By self-defining, I mean that the movement, like modern libertarianism, was a collection of people, and not some seamless aggregate of ideology with regard to its particulars. The label transcendental was slapped upon the movement of letters, aesthetics, and latitudinarianism by its critics, who wished to classify it as a foreign and strange means of philosophizing. Because it was not attached to an aggregate movement or activism, it was charged with being lazy, because it was not bound by empirical characteristics, but instead by a spirit of criticism, it was charged with being negative. Because it preached a kind of paganized Christian ethic, it was non-doctrinal and without a theological component. It was a spirit of reform and not an ethic of mere conservatism. And like all individualistic philosophies without a centralizing principle, it was decried as solipsistic and esoteric. It was perfectly German. More than anything, transcendentalism demarcated a particular kind of libertarian individualism that did not bind the group to participation in a social right or promote any kind of activism in and of itself. It was open to suggestion, and Henry David Thoreau, with others, did push towards civil disobedience with regard to national laws if slavery were justified by that national legislature even in some untenable compromise. The transcendentalists were seeking something above even the old forms and usages of social contracts, compacts, typical nationalistic traditions, and factionalism. They held themselves to a higher ethic than the Constitution. They had no spiritual book to bind their thoughts. Theirs was a kind of declaration of independence in the spirit, and the constant revolution that is required to maintain and nourish a spiritual people in perpetual revolution. It was one of the first truly anarchic expressions of high culture on the American continent, which was not apologetic for its audacity to think for itself and care nothing for the pedagogy of the herd. Emerson saw an inherent link between the stale traditions of the Congregationalist Church establishment, the Calvinist majority of Massachusetts, and the philosophy of Locke. Both, Emerson believed, were limitary in scope. They promoted, in their disparate determinisms, the excesses of materialism and predestination. Locke's contention that the mind was unable to perceive sensible truth, being always under the bombardment of new information, was deterministic in the sense that it reduced the human spirit, be it mind or matter or some combination, to outside influence drawn from the past only, entirely without prior capacity to reason, There was something disturbingly similar in the Congregationalist contention that humans cannot perceive sensible or logical truths in a universe foreordained by God, but only divine truth in Scripture and tradition. For someone with a rest of spirit, like Emerson himself, Kant was a bulwark against these crass determinisms. For though, in German idealism, one accepted the basic reality of empiricism, one situated within that world of sensible information, the Aristotelian organon, the logical apparatus of mind, which could know the form of knowledge and rational argumentation apodictically, 
with absolute and unquestionable certainty, yet without knowing the sure path to the good life, or to the salvation of the Spirit, or even to the objective in objective reality. It was an experimental mindset, the perfect market mechanism, the present tense active power of man without a doctrine to bind it wholly and completely. Its motto was the motto of the Enlightenment, Sa pere aude. By and large, what transcendentalism promoted was the active spirit of man, his active power, his ability to reason to certainty and self-reliant, self-evident truths over and against inherited wisdom. Life became a grand experiment, which, in contradistinction to the old governmental and hegemonic world orders, was now directed at controlling only oneself and making change as an individual, rather than as a mob. This was always most apparent in Emerson's critique of religious conservatism, for he sought something more in line with the Quaker's self-definition and the spiritual quest of the new lights, of Unitarian non-denominationalism. He sincerely and honestly believed in a unity of values in disparate, diverse cultures. He sought wisdom across cultural, national, and racial lines. And while one could make the case that certain constraints upon human action are prized by all cultures, prescriptions of murder and theft within that culture, even though the culture makes allowances for murder and theft from representatives of another culture, and that there might be something like a rational ethic for human interaction and exchange, property rights, self-ownership, and keeping one's word, life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. It tended at times towards extremes of constructivist rationalism and universalism. If it had an element of social justice, however, it was the benign reform of the individual and not faction. Still, it was a movement of voluntarism at root, with no central impetus to coercive state policy. It was the ultimate secession from custom and culture by those who trusted most to the power of reason, the individualists. The prototypical American anarchists who evolved into the continent's first intellectual libertarians. The unapologetic, non-nationalistic, non-identitarian liberals who, without a centralizing dogma, pursued the agorist lifestyle in actual practice. These were those who could see beyond party, faction, positive law, traditional practice, materialist determinism, religious establishment, and clerical dogma. Last week, we explored Emerson's essay, The Conservative, which is an exploration of the tension between sensible culture and anarchic reason, between old usage and new discovery between social justice and individualism, between egalitarianism and self-determination, between historic impressions and the spirit of innovation. In The Transcendentalist, Emerson gives life to the new generation of individualists who abandon the lifeless chrysalids of historical limitation to live the life of the transcendental aesthetic, the criticism that dares to know, without fear of retribution that even in a world of heartache and disappointment, did not fear to fashion new life in enterprises of great pith and moment, though the world might never heap praise upon the individualists in a world fought over by tyrants, factions, and sycophants. In Emerson, we see true intellect. And though German idealism has somewhat lost its shine, we can still capture its essence. It is an essay upon human existence, 
and self-knowledge, entirely without an editor or a footnote, with no references, bylines, publishers, or subscribers. It has no bibliography, no citations, no works cited page. In Emerson, we see the mind that dares to know, to make mistakes, to reflect, and to live. It is the credo of the autodidact, the antithesis to the modern-day scholar, the ostrich that today buries its head in statistics and seeks to bind the sprinters to the herd. In Emerson's essay, we can, for a moment, recover our legacy of anarchism and ideals, to live without master and meet him, if we dare, as peers and not mere paupers. listening to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. Please do remember to stop by and visit my website for more content at www.culture-anarchy.com. If you sign up for our free newsletter and join the email list, you receive access to free ebooks, including the text for A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction and in March 2017, The Spirit of Market Anarchy. Coming up later this year on the Culture and Anarchy podcast, we will be debuting several episodic series. First up, the Shadow of All Doubts, in which I chronicle sketches from the history of skepticism and free thought by analyzing conflicts between individualists and both state and church. The other series that will premiere are The Heist, historical sketches from the world's gold confiscations, which begins with the story of King Philip IV and the Knights Templar and proceeds all the way through FDR and beyond. Another series, The Jacobin Book Club, Neoconservatism, A Requiem, and finally, a rationalist take on the history of literary criticism. Towards the end of the year, we will be moving to a work of philosophy and religion entitled The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, wherein I lay out the world's first argument from grammar. Atheists and deists may in fact both be incorrect, where it concerns the rational concept of God, insofar as the concept of a rationally conceived God arises out of a priori grammar. There's lots of exciting developments coming up, so please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com.
Transcendentalist. A lecture read at the Masonic Temple, Boston, January 1842 by Ralph Waldo Emerson. The first thing we have to say respecting what are called new views here in New England at the present time is that they are not new, but the very oldest of thoughts cast into the mold of these new times. The light is always identical in its composition, but it falls on a great variety of objects, and by so falling is first revealed to us not in its own form, for it is formless, but in theirs. In a like manner, thought only appears in the objects it classifies. What is popularly called transcendentalism among us is idealism, idealism as it appears in 1842. As thinkers, mankind have ever divided into two sects, materialists and idealists. The first class founding on experience, the second on consciousness. The first class beginning to think from the data of the senses. The second class perceive that the senses are not final and say, the senses give us representations of things, but what are the things themselves? They cannot tell. The materialists insist on facts, on history, on the force of circumstances, and the animal wants of man. The idealist on the power of thought and of will, on inspiration, on miracle, on individual culture. These two modes of thinking are both natural, but the idealist contends that his way of thinking is in higher nature. He concedes all that the other affirms, admits the impressions of sense, admits their coherency, their use and beauty, and then asks the materialist for his grounds of assurance that things are as the senses represent them. But I, he says, affirm facts not affected by the illusions of sense, facts which are of the same nature as the faculty which reports them, and are not liable to doubt, facts which in their first appearance to us assume a native superiority to material facts, degrading these into a language by which the first are to be spoken, facts which it only needs a retirement from the senses to discern. Every materialist will be an idealist, but an idealist can never go backward to be a materialist. The idealist, in speaking of events, sees them as spirits. He does not deny the sensuous fact, by no means, but he will not see that alone. He does not deny the presence of this table, this chair, and the walls of this room, but he looks at these things as the reverse side of the tapestry, as the other end, each being a sequel or completion of a spiritual fact which nearly concerns him. This manner of looking at things transfers every object in nature from an independent and anomalous position without, there, into the consciousness. Even the materialist Condillac, perhaps the most logical expounder of materialism, was constrained to say, though we should soar into the heavens, though we should sink into the abyss, we never go out of ourselves. It is always our own thought that we perceive. What more could an idealist say? The materialist, secure in the certainty of sensation, mocks at the fine-spun theories, at stargazers and dreamers, and believes that his life is solid, that he at least takes nothing for granted, but knows where he stands and what he does. Yet how easy it is to show him that he is also a phantom walking and working amid phantoms and that he need only ask a question or two beyond his daily questions to find his solid universe growing dim and impalpable before his sense. The sturdy capitalist, no matter how deep and square on blocks of quincy granite he lays the foundations of his banking house or exchange, must set it, at last, not on a cube corresponding to the angles of his structure, 
but on a mass of unknown materials and solidity, red-hot or white-hot, perhaps at the core, which rounds off to an almost perfect sphericity, and lies floating in soft air, and goes spinning away, dragging bank and banker with it at a rate of a thousand miles the hour. He knows not whither. A bit of bullet, now glimmering, now darkling, through a small cubic space on the edge of an inimaginable pit of emptiness. And this wild balloon, in which the whole venture is embarked, is a just symbol of his whole state and faculty. One thing, at least, he says is certain, and does not give me the headache, that figures do not lie. The multiplication table has been hitherto found unimpeachable truth. And moreover, if I put a gold eagle in my safe, I find it again tomorrow. But for these thoughts, I know not whence they are. They change and pass away. But ask him why he believes that a uniform experience will continue uniform, or on what grounds he founds his faith in his figures, and he will perceive that his mental fabric is built up on just as strange and quaking foundations as his proud edifice of stone. In the order of thought, the materialist takes his departure from the external world and esteems a man as one product of that. The idealist takes his departure from his consciousness and reckons the world in appearance. The materialist respects sensible masses, society, government, social art, and luxury, every establishment, every mass, whether majority of numbers or extent of space or amount of objects, every social action. The idealist has another measure, which is metaphysical, namely the rank which things themselves take in his consciousness. Not at all the size or appearance. Mind is the only reality of which men and all other natures are better or worse reflectors. Nature, literature, history are only subjective phenomena. Although in his action, overpowered by the laws of action, and so warmly cooperating with men, even preferring them to himself, yet when he speaks scientifically or after the order of thought, he is constrained to degrade persons into representatives of truths. He does not respect labor or the products of labor, namely property, otherwise than as manifold symbol, illustrating with wonderful fidelity of details the laws of being. He does not respect government, except as far as it reiterates the law of his mind, nor the church, nor charities, nor arts for themselves, but hears, as at a vast distance, what they say, as if his consciousness would speak to him through a pantomimic scene. His thought, that is the universe." His experience inclines him to behold the procession of facts you call the world as flowing perpetually outward from an invisible, unsounded center in himself, center alike of him and of them, and necessitating him to regard all things as having a subjective or relative existence, relative to that aforesaid unknown center of him. From this transfer of the world into the consciousness, this beholding of all things in the mind, follow easily his whole ethics. It is simpler to be self-dependent. The height, the deity of man is, to be self-sustained, to need no gift, no foreign force. Society is good when it does not violate me, but best when it is likest to solitude. Everything real is self-existent. Everything divine shares the self-existence of the deity. All that you call the world is the shadow of that substance, which you are, the perpetual creation of the powers of thought, of those that are dependent and of those that are independent of your will. 
do not cumber yourself with the fruitless pains to mend and remedy remote effects. Let the soul be erect, and all things will go well. You think me the child of my circumstances. I make my circumstance. Let any thought or motive of mine be different from what they are. The difference will transform my condition and economy. I, this thought, which is called I, is the mold into which the world is poured like melted wax. The mold is invisible, but the world betrays the shape of the mold. You call it the power of circumstance, but it is the power of me. Am I in harmony with myself? My position will seem to you just and commanding. Am I vicious and insane? My fortunes will seem to you obscure and descending. As I am, so shall I associate, and so shall I act. Caesar's history will paint out Caesar. Jesus acted so, because he thought so. I do not wish to overlook or to gainsay any reality. I say, I make my circumstance. But if you ask me, whence am I? I feel like other men, my relation to the fact which cannot be spoken or defined, nor even thought, but which exists and will exist. The transcendentalist adopts the whole connection of spiritual doctrine. He believes in miracle and the perpetual openness of the human mind to new influx of light and power. He believes in inspiration and in ecstasy. He wishes that the spiritual principle should be suffice to demonstrate itself to the end in all possible applications to the state of man without the admission of anything unspiritual, that is, anything positive, dogmatic, personal. Thus, the spiritual measure of inspiration is the depth of the thought and never who said it. And so he resists all attempts to palm other rules and measures on the spirit than its own. In action, he easily incurs the charge of antinomianism by his avowal that he, who has the lawgiver, may with safety not only neglect, but even contravene every written commandment. In the play of Othello, the expiring Desdemona absolves her husband of the murder to her attendant Amelia. Afterwards, when Amelia charges him with the crime, Othello exclaims, You heard her say herself, it was not I. Amelia replies, the more angel she and thou the blacker devil. Of this fine incident, Jacobi, the transcendental moralist, makes use, with other parallel instances, in his reply to Fichte. Jacobi, refusing all measure of right and wrong except the determinations of the private spirit, remarks that there is no crime but has sometimes been a virtue. I, he says, Am that atheist, that godless person who in opposition to an imaginary doctrine of calculation would lie as the dying Desdemona lied, would lie and deceive as Pylades when he impersonated Orestes, would assassinate like Timoleon, would perjure myself like Epaminondas and John DeWitt. I would resolve on suicide like Cato. I would commit sacrilege with David, yea, and pluck the ears of corn on the Sabbath for no other reason than that I was fainting for lack of food. For I have assurance in myself that, in pardoning these faults according to the letter, man exerts the sovereign right of the majesty of his being confers on him. He sets the seal of his divine nature to the grace he accords. In like manner, if there is anything grand and daring in human thought or virtue, any reliance on the vast unknown, 
any presentiment, any extravagance of faith, the spiritualist adopts it as the most in nature. The Oriental mind has always tended to this largeness. Buddhism is an expression of it. The Buddhist who thanks no man who says, Do not flatter your benefactors, but who, in his conviction that every good deed can by no possibility escape its reward, will not deceive the benefactor by pretending that he has done more than he should, is a transcendentalist. You will see by this sketch that there is no such thing as a transcendental party, that there is no pure transcendentalist, that we know of none but prophets and heralds of such a philosophy, that all who by strong bias of nature have learned the spiritual side and doctrine have stopped short of their goal. We have had many harbingers and forerunners, but of a purely spiritual life, history has afforded no example. I mean, we have yet no man who has leaned entirely on his character and eaten angels' food, who, trusting to his sentiments, found life made of miracles, who, working for universal aims, found himself fed. He knew not how. Clothed, sheltered, and weaponed, he knew not how. And yet it was done by his own hands. Only in the indistinct of the lower animals we find the suggestion of the methods of it, and something higher than our understanding. The squirrel hoards nuts, and the bee gathers honey, without knowing what they do, and they are thus provided for, without selfishness or disgrace. Shall we say, then, that transcendentalism is the Saturnalia, or excess of faith? The presentiment of a faith proper to man in his integrity, excessive only when his imperfect obedience hinders the satisfaction of his wish. Nature is transcendental, exists primarily, necessarily. Ever works and advances, yet takes no thought for the morrow. Man owns the dignity of the life which throbs around him in chemistry and tree and animal and in the involuntary functions of his own body. Yet he is balked when he tries to fling himself into this enchanted circle, where all is done without degradation. Yet genius and virtue predict in man the same absence of private ends and of condescension to circumstances, united with every trait and talent of beauty and power. This way of thinking... Falling on Roman times made Stoic philosophers. Falling on despotic times made patriot Cato's and Brutus's. Falling on superstitious times made prophets and apostles. On popish times made Protestants and ascetic monks, preachers of faith against the preachers of works. On prelatical times made Puritans and Quakers. And falling on Unitarian and commercial times makes the peculiar shades of idealism which we know. It is well known to most of my audience that the idealism of the present day acquired the name of transcendental from the use of that term by Immanuel Kant of Konigsberg, who replied to the skeptical philosophy of Locke, which insisted that there was nothing in the intellect which was not previously in the experience of the senses, by showing that there was a very important class of ideas or imperative forms which did not come by experience, but through which experience was required. And these were intuitions of the mind itself and he denominated them transcendental forms. The extraordinary profoundness and precision of that man's thinking have given vogue to this nomenclature in Europe and America, to that extent that whatever belongs to the class of intuitive thought is popularly called at present day transcendental. Although, as we have said, there is no pure transcendentalist, yet the tendency to respect the intuitions and to give them, at least in our creed, 
all authority over our experience, has deeply colored the conversation and poetry of the present day. And the history of genius and of religion in these times, though impure, and as yet not incarnated in any powerful individual, will be the history of this tendency. It is a sign of our times, conspicuous to the coarsest observer, that many intelligent and religious persons withdraw themselves from the common labors and competitions of the market and the caucus, and betake themselves to a certain solitary and critical way of living, from which no solid fruit has yet appeared to justify their separation. They hold themselves aloof. They feel the disproportion between their faculties and the work offered them, and they prefer to ramble in the country and to perish of ennui, to the degradation of such charities and such ambitions as the city can propose to them. They are striking work, and crying out for somewhat worthy to do. What they do is done only because they are overpowered by the humanities that speak on all sides, and they consent to such labor as is open to them. Though to their lofty dream of writing of Iliads and Hamlets, or the building of cities or empires, seems drudgery. Now, everyone must do after his kind, be he asp or angel, and these must. The question which a wise man and a student of modern history will ask is, what that kind is? And truly, as in an ecclesiastical history, we take so much pains to know what the Gnostics, what the Essenes, what the Manichees, what the Reformers believed, it would not misbecome us to inquire nearer home what these companions and contemporaries of ours think and do at least so far as these thoughts and actions appear to be not accidental and personal, but common to many, and the inevitable flower of the tree of time. Our American literature and spiritual history are, we confess, in the optative mood. But whoso knows these seething brains, these admirable radicals, these unsocial worshippers, these talkers who talk the sun and moon away, will believe that this heresy cannot pass away without leaving its mark. They are lonely. The spirit of their writing and conversation is lonely. They repel influences. They shun general society. They incline to shut themselves in their chamber in the house, to live in the country rather than in the town, and to find their tasks and amusements in solitude. Society, to be sure, does not like this very well. It saith, Whoso goes to walk alone accuses the whole world. He declareth all to be unfit to be his companions. It is very uncivil, nay, insulting. Society will retaliate. Meantime, this retirement does not proceed from any whim on the part of these separators, but if anyone will take pains to talk with them, he will find that this part is chosen both from temperament and from principle, with some unwillingness too, and as a choice of the less of the two evils. For these persons are not by nature melancholy, sour, and unsocial, They are not stockish or brute, but joyous, susceptible, affectionate. They have even more than the others a great wish to be loved. Like the young Mozart, they are rather ready to cry ten times a day, but are you sure you love me? Nay, if they tell you their whole thought, they will own that love seems to them the last and highest gift of nature, that there are persons whom in their hearts they daily thank for existing, persons whose faces are perhaps unknown to them, but whose fame and spirit have penetrated their solitude, and for whose sake they wish to exist. To behold the beauty of another character which inspires a new interest in our own, to behold the beauty lodged in a human being with such vivacity of apprehension, 
that I am instantly forced home to inquire if I am not deformity itself, to behold in another the expression of a love so high that it assures itself, assures itself also to me against every possible casualty except my unworthiness. These are degrees on the scale of human happiness to which they have ascended, and it is a fidelity to this sentiment which has made common association distasteful to them. They wish a just and even fellowship, or none. They cannot gossip with you, and they do not wish, as they are sincere and religious, to gratify any more curiosity which you may entertain. Like fairies, they do not wish to be spoken of. Love me, they say, but do not ask me who is my cousin and my uncle. If you do not need to hear my thought because you can read it in my face and behavior, then I will tell it to you from sunrise to sunset. If you cannot divine it, you would not understand what I say. I will not molest myself for you. I do not wish to be profaned. And yet it seems as if this loneliness and not this love would prevail in their circumstances because of the extravagant demand they make on human nature. That indeed constitutes a new feature in their portrait, that they are the most exacting and extortionate critics. Their quarrel with every man they meet is not with his kind, but with his degree. There is not enough of him. That is the only fault. They prolong their privilege of childhood in this wise, of doing nothing but making immense demands on all the gladiators in the list of action and fame. They make us feel the strange disappointment which overcasts every human youth. So many promising youths, and never a finished man. The profound nature will have a savage rudeness. The delicate one will be shallow, or the victim of sensibility. The richly accomplished will have some capital absurdity, and so every piece has a crack. Tis strange, but this masterpiece is a result of such an extreme delicacy, that the most unobserved flaw in the boy will neutralize the most aspiring genius and spoil the work. Talk with a seaman of the hazards to life in his profession, and he will ask you, Where are the old sailors? Do you not see that all are young men? And we, on this sea of human thought, in like manner inquire, Where are the old idealists? Where are they who represented to the last generation that extravagant hope, which a few happy aspirants suggest to ours? In looking at the class of counsel and power and wealth, and at the matronage of the land, amidst all the prudence and all the triviality, one asks, Where are they who represented genius, virtue, the invisible and heavenly world? To these. Are they dead? taken in early ripeness to the gods, as ancient wisdom foretold their fate? Or did the high idea die out of them, and leave their unperfumed body as its tomb and tablet, announcing to all that the celestial inhabitant who once gave them beauty had departed? Will it be better with the new generation? We easily predict a fair future to each new candidate who enters the lists, but we are frivolous and volatile, and by low aims and ill example, do what we can to defeat this hope. Then these youths bring us a rough but effectual aid. By their unconcealed dissatisfaction, they expose our poverty and the insignificance of man to man. A man is a poor limitary benefactor. 
He ought to be a shower of benefits, a great influence, which should never let his brother go, but should refresh old merits continually with new ones, so that, though absent, he should never be out of my mind, his name never far from my lips. But if the earth should open at my side, or my last hour were come, his name should be the prayer that I should utter to the universe. But in our experience, man is cheap, and friendship wants its deep sense. We affect to dwell with our friends in their absence, but we do not. When deed, word, or letter comes not, they let us go. These exacting children advertise us of our wants. There is no compliment, no smooth speech with them. They pay you only this one compliment of insatiable expectation. They aspire. They severely exact. And if they only stand fast in this watchtower and persist in demanding unto the end and without end, then they are terrible friends, whereof poet and priest cannot choose but stand in awe. And what if they eat clouds and drink wind? They have not been without service to the race of man. With this passion for what is great and extraordinary, it cannot be wondered at that they are repelled by vulgarity and frivolity in people. They say to themselves, It is better to be alone than in bad company. And it is really a wish to be met. They wish to find society in their hope and religion, which prompts them to shun what is called society. They feel that they are never so fit for friendship as when they have quitted mankind and taken themselves to friend. A picture, a book, a favorite spot in the hills or the woods, which they can people with the fair and worthy creation of the fancy, can give them often forms so vivid that these for the time shall seem real and society the illusion. But their solitary and fastidious manners not only withdraw them from the conversation, but from the labors of the world. They are not good citizens, not good members of society. Unwillingly, they bear their part of the public and private burdens. They do not willingly share in the public charities and the public religious rites, in the enterprises of education, of missions, foreign or domestic, in the abolition of the slave trade, or in the temperance society. They do not even like to vote. The philanthropists inquire whether transcendentalism does not mean sloth. They had his life here that their friend is dead, is that he is a transcendentalist. For then he is paralyzed and can never do anything for humanity. What right, cries the good world, has the man of genius to retreat from work and indulge himself? The popular literary creed seems to be, I am a sublime genius, I ought not therefore to labor. But genius is the power to labor better and more availably. Deserve thy genius, exalt it. The good, the illuminated, sit apart from the rest, censuring their dullness and vices, as if they thought that, by sitting very grand in their chairs, the very brokers, attorneys, and congressmen would see the error of their ways and flock to them. But the good and wise must learn to act and carry salvation to the combatants and demagogues in the dusty arena below. On the part of these children, it is replied that life and their faculties seem to them gifts too rich to be squandered on such trifles as you propose to them. What you call your fundamental institutions, your great and holy causes, seem to them great abuses, and when nearly seen, paltry matters. Each cause, as it is called, say, abolition, temperance, 
say, Calvinism or Unitarianism, becomes speedily a little sharp, where the article, let it have been at first never so subtle and ethereal, is now made up into portable and convenient cakes, and retailed in small quantities to suit purchasers. You make very free use of these words great and holy, but few things appear to them such. Few persons have any magnificence of nature to inspire enthusiasm, and the philanthropies and charities have a certain air of quackery. As to the general course of living and the daily employments of men, they cannot see much virtue in these, since they are parts of this vicious circle. And as no great ends are answered by the men, there is nothing noble in the arts by which they are maintained. Nay, they have made the experiment and found that, from the liberal professions to the coarsest manual labor, and from the courtesies of the academy and the college of the conventions of the cotillon room and the morning call, there is a spirit of cowardly compromise and seeming, which intimates a frightful skepticism, a life without love, and an activity without an aim. Unless the action is necessary, unless it is adequate, I do not wish to perform it. I do not wish to do one thing but once. I do not love routine. Once possessed of the principle, it is equally easy to make four and forty thousand applications of it. A great man will be content to have indicated in any the slightest manner his perception of the reigning idea of his time, and will leave to those who like it the multiplication of examples. When he has hit the white, the rest may shatter the target. Everything admonishes us how needlessly long life is. Every moment of a hero so raises and cheers us that a twelve-month is an age. All that the brave Xanthus brings home from his wars is the recollection that, at the storming of Samos, in the heat of the battle, Pericles smiled on me and passed on to another detachment. It is the quality of the moment, not the number of days, of events, or of actors, that imports. New, we confess, and by no means happy, is our condition. If you want the aid of our labor, we ourselves stand in greater want of the labor. We are miserable with inaction. We perish of rest and rust, but we do not like your work. Then, says the world, show me your own. We have none. What will you do then? cries the world. We will wait. How long? Until the universe rises up and calls us to work. But whilst you wait, you grow old and useless. Be it so. I can sit in a corner and perish, as you call it. But I will not move until I have the highest command. If no call should come for years, for centuries then I know that the want of the universe is the attestation of faith by my abstinence. Your virtuous projects, so-called, do not cheer me. I know that which shall come will cheer me. If I cannot work, at least I need not lie. All that is clearly due today is not to lie. In other places, other men have encountered sharp trials and have behaved themselves well. The martyrs were sawn asunder or hung alive on meat hooks. Cannot we screw our courage to patience and truth, and without complaint or even with good humor, await our turn of action in the infinite councils?
but to come a little closer to the secret of these persons, we must say that to them it seems a very easy matter to answer the objections of the man of the world, but not so easy to dispose of the doubts or objections that occur to themselves. They are exercised in their own spirit with queries, which acquaint them with all adversity and with the trials of the bravest heroes. When I asked them concerning their private experience, they answered somewhat in this wise. It is not to be denied that there must be some wide difference between my faith and other faith, and mine is a certain brief experience, which surprised me in the highway or in the market, in some place, at some time, whether in the body or out of the body, God knoweth, and made me aware that I had played the fool the fools all this time, but that law existed for me and for all, that to me belonged trust, a child's trust and obedience, and the worship of ideas, and I should never be a fool more. Well, in the space of an hour, probably, I was let down from this height. I was at my old tricks, the selfish member of a selfish society. My life is superficial, takes no root in the deep world. I ask, when shall I die and be relieved of the responsibility of seeing a universe which I do not use? I wish to exchange this flash of lightning faith for continuous daylight this fever glow of a benign climate. These two states of thought diverge every moment and stand in wild contrast. To him who looks at his life from these moments of illumination, it will seem that he skulks and plays a mean, shiftless, and subaltern part in the world. That is to be done, which he has not skill to do, or to be said, which others can say better, and he lies by or occupies his hands with some plaything until his hour comes again. Much of our reading, much of our labor, seems mere waiting. It was not that we were born for. Any other could do it as well, or better. So little skill enters into these works, so little do they mix with the divine life, that it really signifies little what we do, whether we turn a grindstone, or ride, or run, or make fortunes, or govern the state. The worst feature of this double consciousness is that the two lives— of the understanding and of the soul, which we lead, really show very little relation to each other, never meet and measure each other. One prevails now, all buzz and din, and the other prevails then, all infinitude and paradise. And with the progress of life, these two discover no greater disposition to reconcile themselves. Yet what is my faith? What am I? What but a thought of serenity and independence, an abode in the deep blue sky? Presently, the clouds shut down again. Yet we retain the belief that this petty web we weave will at last be overshot and reticulated with veins of the blue, and that the moments will characterize the days. Patience, then, is for us. Is it not? Patience, and still patience. When we pass, as presently we shall, into some new infinitude out of this Iceland of negations, it will please us to reflect that, though we had few virtues or consolations, we bore with our indigence, nor once strove to repair it with hypocrisy or false heat of any kind. But this class are not sufficiently characterized if we admit to add that they are lovers and worshippers of beauty, and the eternal trinity of truth, goodness, and beauty, each in its perfection including the three, they prefer to make beauty the sign and head. Some of the same taste is observable in all the moral movements of the time, in the religious and benevolent enterprises. They have a liberal, even an aesthetic spirit. 
a reference to beauty and action sounds, to be sure, a little hollow and ridiculous in the ears of the old church. In politics, it has often sufficed when they treated of justice if they kept the bounds of selfish calculation. If they granted restitution, it was prudence which granted it. But the justice which is now claimed for the black and the pauper and the drunkard is for beauty, is for a necessity to the soul of the agent, not of the beneficiary. I say, this is the tendency, not yet the realization. Our virtue totters and trips, does not yet walk firmly. Its representatives are austere. They preach and denounce. Their rectitude is not yet a grace. They are still liable to that slight taint of burlesque which, in our strange world, attaches to the zealot. A saint should be as dear as the apple of the eye. Yet we are tempted to smile, and we flee from the working to the speculative reformer to escape that same slight ridicule. Alas for these days of derision and criticism. We call the beautiful the highest, because it appears to us the golden mean, escaping the dowdiness of the good and the heartlessness of the true. They are lovers of nature also, and find an indemnity in the inviolable order of the world for the violated order and grace of man. There is, no doubt, a great deal of well-founded objection to be spoken or felt against the sayings and doings of this class, some of whose traits we have selected. No doubt they will lay themselves open to criticism and to lampoons, and as ridiculous stories will be to be told of them as of any. There will be cant and pretension. There will be subtlety and moonshine. These persons are of unequal strength and do not all prosper. They complain that everything around them must be denied. And if feeble, it takes all their strength to deny before they can begin to lead their own life. Grave seniors insist on their respect to this institution and that usage, to an obsolete history, to some vocation or college or etiquette or beneficiary or charity or morning or evening call, which they resist as what does not concern them. But it costs such sleepless nights, alienations, and misgivings, they have so many moods about it. These old guardians never change their minds. They have but one mood on the subject, namely that Antony is very perverse that it is quite as much as Antony can do to assert his rights, abstain from what he thinks foolish, and keep his temper. He cannot help the reaction of this injustice in his own mind. He is braced up and stilted. All freedom and flowing genius, all sallies of wit and frolic nature are quite out of the question. It is well if he can keep from lying, injustice, and suicide. There is no time for gaiety and grace. His strength and spirits are wasted in rejection but the strong spirits overpower those around them without effort. Their thought and emotion comes in like a flood, quite withdraws them from all notice of these carping critics. They surrender themselves with glad heart to the heavenly guide, and only by implication reject the clamorous nonsense of the hour. Grave seniors talk to the deaf. Church and old book mumble and ritualize to an unheeding, preoccupied and advancing mind, and thus they, by happiness of greater momentum, lose no time, but take the right road at first. But all these of whom I speak are not proficients. They are novices. They only show the road in which man should travel. When the soul has greater health and prowess, 
yet let them feel the dignity of their charge and deserve a larger power. Their heart is the ark in which the fire is concealed, which shall burn in a broader and universal flame. Let them obey the genius then most when his impulse is wildest, then most when he seems to lead to uninhabitable deserts of thought and life, for the path which the hero travels alone is the highway of health and benefit to mankind. What is the privilege and nobility of our nature but its persistency through its power to attach itself to what is permanent? Society also has its duties in reference to this class and must behold them with what charity it can. Possibly some benefit may yet accrue from them to the state. In our mechanics fair, there must not only be bridges, plows, and carpenters' planes, and baking troughs, but also some few finer instruments, rain gauges, thermometers, and telescopes. And in society, besides farmers, sailors, and weavers, there must be a few persons of purer fire, kept specially as gauges and meters of character, persons of a fine detecting instinct, who betray the smallest accumulations of wit and feeling in the bystander. Perhaps, too, there might be room for exciters and monitors, collectors of the heavenly spark with power to convey the electricity to others. Or, as the storm-tossed vessel at sea speaks the frigate or line packet to learn its longitude, so it may not be without its advantage that we should now and then encounter rare and gifted men to compare the points of our spiritual compass and verify our bearings from superior chronometers. Amidst the downward tendency and proneness of things, when every voice is raised for a new road or another statute, or a subscription of stock, for an improvement in dress or in dentistry, for a new house or a larger business, for a political party or the division of an estate? Will you not tolerate one or two solitary voices in the land, speaking for thoughts and principles not marketable or perishable? Soon these improvements and mechanical inventions will be superseded, these modes of living lost out of memory, these cities rotted, ruined by war, by new inventions, by new seats of trade or the geologic changes. All gone, like the shells which sprinkle the sea beach with a white colony today, forever renewed to be forever destroyed. But the thoughts which these few hermits strove to proclaim by silence, as well as by speech, not only by what they did, but what they forbore to do, shall abide in beauty and strength, to reorganize themselves in nature, to invest themselves anew in other, perhaps higher endowed with happier mixed clay than ours, in fuller union with the surrounding system. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. If we cannot do this one way, we will do it another. But Nothing. do it, we will. It's like all forms of government. Somebody must And I don't like the word rule. Hey! Ah, I am going library. to establish a government market for gold in the United States. If this country rules are not imposed, they are the wish of all free citizens. Travel around a bit, then you'll Take see how they are. Hey! hey. Now let me say something. Let me tell you how wrong you are. 
in the first place. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. <laughs> now I forgot what I wanted to say. So what? We're rolling out there As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi, their tracks, Cold Heat, I Close My Eyes, and Untouchable. Follow them on SoundCloud and Twitter, and leave them a great rating. Also, featuring audio from King of New York, a Charlie Chaplin film, provided with the express permission of Roy Export SAS, who holds the copyright there too.